Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. So glad to have you with us on Here and Now Anytime, where we share stories that matter and stories that surprise. Today's news, along with arts, culture, and music. Subscribe, follow, go ahead, share. Let's get started. We're running for that finish line toward the end of the year. We see nature hand-in-hand with the way we would see another kunaka, like another human being. So if you would care for a family member, you would care for the land. Young, indigenous climate activists taking their cases to court. It's Wednesday, December 27th. From NPR and WBUR Boston, welcome to Here and Now, Anytime. I'm Shirley Jahan. On our show today, as we are entering primary election season, we look at how access to the ballot has expanded or become more restricted, the battleground of voting rights and where the states line up. And then, the wonderful world of gaming. Some epic, some blockbuster, some new, some old. Dungeons & Dragons has a roaring return. Whether you're a gamer or not, it's kind of fun to go exploring. First up, we hear the voices of young people in Hawaii. Indigenous youth fighting climate change after they themselves felt the impact right in their houses. Their lawsuit is the latest brought by young people making the case for a constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment. Deepa Fernandez brings us their story. Youth fighting for climate justice are reflecting on their progress this year as we close out 2023. I spoke with Ricky Held, the lead youth plaintiff in a climate case against the state of Montana back in August after what she called an unbelievable victory. I guess I've had this sense since the ruling came out that um, our actions that we take really do matter. I just have a lot of hope for the future. And with decisions like this and all the other court cases coming, there's there's going to be a change and it's just a matter of time now. The judge ruled that the aggressive ways in which Montana has pushed for fossil fuel development violates a young person's constitutional rights. Over the summer, we also heard from Grist staff writer Anita Hofschneider about a similar youth-led climate lawsuit advancing in Hawaii against the state's Department of Transportation in the background of the wildfires on Maui. So what they're saying is that the State Department of Transportation has not done enough to you know, really prioritize the state's goals of being net carbon negative by 2045 and to really recognize their constitutional rights to a clean and healthful environment. Most of the plaintiffs in the Hawaii case are Indigenous youth. Two of them join us now to talk about the path forward for their activism. Kalalapa Winter is 19 years old. She grew up on two different islands in Haena, Kauai and Haleiwa, Oahu. She's now a sophomore at the University of Southern California pursuing acting. Kalalapa, welcome to Here and Now. Aloha, Deepa. Thanks for having me. And we also have with us one of the youngest plaintiffs in the climate lawsuit. Her name is Kaliko, and she's 13. We're only using her first name because she's a minor whose last name is not used in the lawsuit, and her family wants to protect her identity. She lives on the island of Maui. Kaliko, welcome. Aloha. Thank you so much for having me. 
I'm so glad to have you both with us. First, I, I want to just talk a little personally because both of you have been touched by traumatic events that help inform your perspective. Kalalapa, I understand when you were a young girl, much of your community was washed away by a storm. Can you tell me how that impacted you? Yeah, I was actually Coleco's age. I was in, I think, eighth grade in 2018. Hawaii was hit by the first ever climate-induced disaster, uh, commonly referred to in Hawaii as the rain bomb. It was uh, like 55 inches of rain in a little less than 24 hours, basically wiped out my community, really put my family and a lot of other families through a lot of trauma. And the hardest part for me was that I was at school in Oahu when it happened. So going back without ever having experienced the rain, going back and seeing how destroyed my community was, was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And Kaliko, I understand you lost your home in a flood five years ago during Hurricane Olivia. You're joining us now from Maui. Have you also been impacted by the fires there? Um, so I did lose my house in 2018 to Hurricane Olivia in the valley that I lived in. Um, actually, we lost my dad's house in the Maui fires, in the Lahaina fire. And yeah. So, so you've lost your home twice in your 13 years. Yes, that is correct. I mean, how does that feel? I think there are people who couldn't even comprehend losing their home one time, let alone twice. I mean, it's really devastating when you lose all of your belongings and, like, have nowhere to go home to. I, it's... You cannot really even describe the feeling of losing your house to anybody else who hasn't lost their house. It's like you don't have a home. It's really, really hard to cope with. And and Kaliko, I understand that you don't even go to a brick-and-mortar school. You don't go to a school building anymore after the Maui fires. Where, where is school for you now? Um, right now, for school, we're online, so I just stay um, home and do school from home. You know, you both have shared so much of your personal stories as part of your lawsuit that is in Hawaii. It's now scheduled to go to court next summer. How hopeful are you feeling about your fight, especially after seeing young people in the Montana case win this year? and? Kalalapa, let's start with you. Yeah, honestly, watching people who are our age, well, so a lot of them, actually all of them are younger than me, and their fight in Montana was really inspiring. Um, I am actually very, very hopeful about our case. Uh, it's been going on for a really long time, and it's been a lot of ups and downs. And I think that with everything that's happened in this past year, in the last 10 years, in the last five years, I don't see how someone could look at the evidence of this case and not rule in our favor. Um, and it makes me really proud that there are so many. It's a weird combination of proud and also sad for our indigenous community that we are fighting this fight so hard and that we are so young fighting this fight. You know, I want you to talk a little more about that because your your lawsuit is specifically against the Department of Transportation. 
What yeah. might change coming out of that for your Indigenous communities? Should you win? So if we were to win, there's a lot of things that we are asking. The biggest thing for myself is that we are not just fighting for us. Like, we are speaking as children who have had traumatic life experiences as a result of the climate crisis. But we understand that there are people who are going to come after us, and we see it as our kuleana, as our responsibility to do as our kupuna and our makul, um, that's elders and our parents, the way that they've taught us is to fight for the next generation, to ensure that the next generation has an aina, a land, and waters and air that they are entitled to as Indigenous people and will always be safe and healthy. Yeah. Kaliko, you know, I know that part of your schooling, your education is an immersion in your native languages and cultures, and you have lived through so many climate disasters. There are also young people like you in, in all 50 states who are active and filing cases and doing community campaigns. I'm wondering if you feel any connection, you know, despite everything you've been through to, to other young people around the country as, as you all lead the fight for accountability. Um, I really do feel a connection to other young people because we are all fighting the same fight and we all have the same goal and we're all really just trying to make sure that our grandkids, our kids have a future. And as you kind of are learning your own Indigenous Native Hawaiian culture, is there anything you bring from that to, you know, the broader community of, of how we should be looking at the environment and looking to make changes to, to make things more sustainable going forward? Absolutely. Um, here in Hawaii, our kupunas have so many ways of making sure that we help the land because we know that the land is going to help us. And, and Kalalapa, I wonder if, if you can, you know, add to that because you too, um, as you say, are driven by an, an Indigenous mindset that you were raised with. What's unique about your approach to climate justice that you think others can learn from going forward? I think that as Indigenous people, as Polynesian people, as Hawaiian people, we are following in our kupuna's footsteps. A huge part of the current way that the Western world and Western scientists look at climate justice and sustainability has a lot to do with seeing people as the problem. And as Coleco said, in our culture, we had never viewed humans as separate from nature. We see nature hand-in-hand hand with the way we would see another kunaka, like another human being. So if you would care for a family member um, when they're sick, you would care for the land when it's sick or when it needs healing. Because in our culture, the land is our family member, right? And so when we look at how we're as a whole, as a society in this world— Dealing with the climate crisis, what I think is really important to learn from indigenous communities is the concept of, and in order to do this, we call this decolonizing our mindsets, right? Instead of taking humans out because and seeing humans as the problem, we see humans as part of the solution because we are part of this world. We are part of the natural world. We are not separate from it. Um, if we've created a problem, we can fix it, you know? 
You make it sound so simple, Kalalapa. <laughs> I totally get that it's not that easy. Um, I think it's because of the way I was raised. So I do try to spread it as much as I can because I really, truly, truly think the best way for Indigenous people and as like just humans in general, the best way to reconnect and to quite literally save the environment as we know it is to go through this pathway. I want to thank you both so much, so much wisdom that we can all learn from Kalalapa, Winter and Kaliko, two of the plaintiffs in a youth climate lawsuit against the State Department of Transportation in Hawaii. Kalalapa, Kaliko, thank you both so much. Mahalo, Piha Deepa. Mahalo. Coming up, next year may be wild and woolly on the election front. Indictments and court cases against Trump, the upshot of threats against election workers, and the backbone of it all, casting a ballot. We look at how access to voting is being restricted and where it's being broadened across the states. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Your employees are more than your coworkers. They're the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers modern group benefits designed to protect employees and their families with dental, vision, life, and disability coverage. Humana knows every employee and every business is unique. That's why they listen to your needs and build plans with you and your team in mind. That's the power of human care. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. And just 19 days away from the Iowa caucuses, an AP poll out today found that only about a third of Republicans feel quite confident that their votes in their own party primaries and caucuses will be counted correctly. In contrast, 72% of Democrats are confident their party will count their votes accurately. So where are we on how elections will be conducted? Well, Michigan is one of the states that passed a slew of laws this year to expand voting access. It's now mandatory in Michigan to have not one election day, but nine, effectively, with election day style early voting. Access to ballot drop boxes is also mandatory. But North Carolina was one of the states that restricted voting access in 2023. Lawmakers banned ballot drop boxes, and they expanded who can challenge early and mail ballots. Well, our next guest says states are moving in two different directions as we approach 2024, and it's important to know why and what it means. So at the end of the year, let's take a look at how voting looks in the next year with Liz Avor, Senior Policy Advisor to the Voting Rights Lab, which tracks state election laws. Liz, start with why. Why are states moving in two directions? And we're guessing it goes back to the pandemic in 2020 and, frankly, lies about the election that year. Yeah, you know, in, in 2020, we saw nearly every state in the country make really significant changes to its voting systems so that we could have a safe and accessible election in the midst of a global pandemic. 
And, you know, we saw states expand access to mail voting and to in-person early voting, you know, with the purpose of relieving pressure and congestion at polling places on election day. And it was enormously successful. Mm -hmm. Voting was more accessible than it has ever been. And we saw record-breaking turnout. Uh, But since then, we've seen this divide develop and deepen in the country around voting access. You know, we've seen some states like Nevada and Michigan, like you mentioned, um, that really saw how well those temporary changes worked. And so they went ahead and made some of those temporary expansions permanent. And, you know, meanwhile, we've seen other states, most notably, as you mentioned, North Carolina this year, that have done the exact opposite, not just rolling back those successful temporary changes, but actually restricting voting access beyond what it was prior to the 2020 election. Okay, well, let's take a look. And we should, again, I think it's worth underscoring that despite the fact that in most cases, in most places, there was no fraud found. There were, you know, there might have been problems here or there, but no, nothing catastrophic. So let's take a look. Voting by mail seems to be one of the biggest flashpoints. Of course, former President Trump railed against mail-in ballots in the 2020 election. Few problems were found with absentee ballots. So how did this divide play out in 2023? Yeah, so at Voting Rights Lab, we've tracked nearly 600 new election-related laws that have been enacted since the 2020 election, and 44% of them have dealt with mail voting. Hmm. So over the past three years, every single state in the country has adjusted its mail voting laws in some way. In Nevada now, every registered voter in the state will receive a mail ballot uh, in the mail before the election. Uh, They can fill that ballot out at home and then return it either by mail or they can put it in a drop box or return it in person. Or uh, they can choose to discard that mail ballot and just vote in person instead if that's what they prefer. But there are other states that have made it more difficult to vote by mail. And we've seen uh, states prohibit the use of drop boxes. We've seen them get rid of grace periods for receiving completed mail ballots that were delayed in the mail. And Texas even made it illegal for election officials to send unsolicited mail ballot applications to voters. So that would definitely be a restriction. Uh, What about early voting? Yeah, so early voting is actually has not been controversial. This is a real kind of bright spot in election legislation that we've seen over the past several years. Um, Since 2020, States across the political spectrum have nearly uniformly expanded access to in-person early voting. You know, we've seen states as diverse as Connecticut, Missouri, and South Carolina all pass laws creating early voting for the first time. Uh, There are actually now only three states in the country that do not offer any in-person early voting, Mississippi, Alabama, and New Hampshire. Uh, We mentioned Michigan. It's a battleground state. Fake electors there tried to overturn the results in 2020. One of Michigan's new laws improves ballot curing. This is when a voter can fix an error, a mistake on their ballot. Republicans have sued in state and federal courts over it. Talk about, you know, this issue, just ballot curing. How are states moving in two directions over that? Right. So we've seen since 2020, 15 states have created or improved their processes for curing mail ballots. And that list includes states as politically diverse as Texas and California. So when it comes to um, lawmakers creating these laws, we're actually seeing a lot of consensus around the country in terms of voters having the right to correct inadvertent errors on their mail ballots so that their votes are actually counted. That's so interesting. 
Uh, what about uh, getting ballots in, returning ballots? A judge is taking up one part of Mississippi's new voting law. It's the part that criminalizes a neighbor who assists another voter in returning a ballot. I mean, if somebody's elderly at home and they, they can't get the ballot in themselves, it would seem like that would be fine. Uh, but so there you have that in Mississippi. What's going on in other states? Returning mail ballots has been a very divisive issue. We've seen some states that have done a lot of work to make it easier for voters to return ballots, and others have put up a lot of barriers that will make it harder for uh, for that to happen. The example in Mississippi is a really stark one. Um, we've seen other states like Florida, Georgia, and Texas eliminate or severely restrict access to mail ballot drop boxes. Uh, we've seen other states like North Carolina just this year uh, move up the deadline by which completed mail ballots have to be received that will make it harder for voters to return their mail ballots yeah. in 2024. Okay. Well, let's go now to ground zero for election battles, which is, of course, Georgia. Georgia passed an Election Integrity Act in 2021. It did things like expand some in-person early voting it limited the use of ballot boxes, uh, banned officials from sending out unsolicited absentee ballots, made it a crime for groups to give free food or water to voters standing in line at the polls. But it also allows for any Georgian to challenge an unlimited number of voters. What's been the effect of that provision? It really opened the door to frivolous mass challenges mm -hmm. of voter registrations. And as a result, the already overworked understaffed Georgia election offices were inundated with frivolous mass challenges in the 2022 midterms. And, you know, the good news is we saw them rejecting those frivolous mass challenges and we didn't see voters, you know, losing, losing their right to vote. But it's very onerous on those uh, election workers who are already overworked and understaffed. Well, and had also been attacked in the 2020 election, but and, and, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we've seen lawmakers pass legislation creating new criminal penalties against election officials. There are um, election officials have been attacked on, on many levels since the 2020 election. Yeah. I want to go to Texas. A notable development yes. uh, in Texas in 2023, that state was able to take over election administration in Harris County. That's the state's most diverse and populous county. That's where Houston is. What are you watching for there? We saw a piece of legislation passed that actually eliminated the county's election administrator position. Uh, we see, saw other legislation uh, passed that really just allows for more uh, state oversight over the Harris County elections. Uh, Harris County election officials have in the past been very active at ensuring that uh, their diverse populace has uh, access to the polls. And so we'll be watching to see how these new state laws um, impact that. And we'll be watching with you. Uh, one last question. What's the takeaway for you? Uh, you know, we've said it's a divide. Is one side in this tug of war pulling harder? I mean, is it going to be harder to vote in 2024 overall, easier? What, what's your sense? I mean, the bottom line is it depends on where you live. For some Americans, voting is going to be more accessible in 2024 than it has ever been before. You know, while other Americans are going to experience a lot of new barriers to the ballot box. And my main takeaway here is that the success of this election is really going to come down to the ability of voters and of election officials to adjust to and overcome some of these new restrictions. Liz Avor, Senior Policy Advisor to the Voting Rights Lab. They track state election laws. Liz, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
tomorrow on Here and Now Anytime. Some climate scientists have just tossed out the scientific terms. They simply say last year was bananas, in addition to being deadly. The floods in Libya were the deadliest floods anywhere in the world this century. The fire in Hawaii was the deadliest American fire in more than 100 years. The wildfires in Canada burned so much land that you could fit more than half the world's countries inside them. Hear the whole conversation tomorrow on Here and Now, Anytime. Subscribe and follow us on the NPR app so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up next, 2023 was a big year in the gaming industry. We'll explore what's new, what's old, and what's merged in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to improving lives through invention, innovation, and climate action. 2023 will go down as a pivotal year for the games industry. Microsoft merged with Activision Blizzard for $69 billion. That's the biggest gaming acquisition ever. And about 10,000 game developers lost their jobs, even as consumers enjoyed a flood of acclaimed, lucrative games. James Mastromarino is a Here and Now producer by day. By night, he dons a cape and becomes our gaming expert. He's been reporting throughout this tumultuous historic year and is here for a look back. Hi, James. Hi, Robin. And now you know, everybody knows, you know, I know Mario and things like that, but I'm not, uh, uh, you know, a big-time gamer. So to hear that this is one of the most important years for the industry in decades, that makes me sit up. Why is that? Well, to put it simply, it's just that there's been this unprecedented wave of excellent games released this year. Mm. And that's largely because game delays, often because of the pandemic, resulted in just this stacked year where we had so many games coming out one on top of the other. It's been great for players, but there's also another lagging effect of the pandemic, which is that companies invested a lot of money into personnel when games were booming, when we were all trapped inside. And then when that retracted ever so slightly, they ended up making huge cuts to their staff. And every case is different. Each company has different reasons for why they might be laying off lots of people. But the upshot is that around 10,000 U.S. gaming developers lost their job this year. Mm. Yeah. So good year for gamers, not so good for people who make them. 
Yeah. Yeah. You edited the big uh, NPR piece with 97 of NPR's favorite games from the year. That says a lot. You know, that was 97 of the favorites. <laughs> right. You, we didn't quite make it to 100. Right. But we, we had people write about their 97 favorites. Well, and there were others you didn't like. I mean, that's how many games had come out. Yeah. And so let's start with Nintendo. They had a huge year. Yeah, they really knocked it out of the park with The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which added this incredibly deep construction mechanic to their hit Breath of the Wild open world formula. So not only can you adventure in this beautiful, fantastical space, but you can also like make a rocket ship or a Jeep, basically, Mm -hmm. and drive it around, which is incredible. And then they followed that up in October with Super Mario Brothers Wonder, which takes the established Mario formula of jumping from left to right and adds all of these surreal flourishes. Like, you'll pick up a power-up that will turn you into an elephant, or you'll touch a flower and suddenly you'll be riding a dragon. It's incredibly propulsive and musical and bizarre. And it's worth noting that it's coming the same year as this blockbuster Super Mario Brothers movie. It made well over a billion dollars in the international box office. And Nintendo also unveiled an entire theme park at Universal Studios Hollywood. So they're really tackling more than just games and their game consoles now. That's Nintendo. You're telling me another really old gaming institution, Dungeons & Dragons, had a big year. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, Dungeons & Dragons goes back really gained popularity in the 70s and 80s. Well, way back and, then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was something my, my dad grew up on and he kind of raised me to be a nerd. So here I am. And yet it's never really had a bigger year in 2023. And much of that is attributable to this video game version, Baldur's Gate 3, which came out also in the late summer and just took off, gaining momentum as more people who'd heard about Dungeons & Dragons were curious about how this game would work. It itself is the descendant of a really legendary series of computer games I grew up on in the late 90s and early aughts. But the appeal is that you can create whatever character you want. You have this enormous cast of characters that all react to what you do and you form individual relationships with each of them. Now it is time for you to join the others and complete our destiny. No two people will experience its epic story the same way, but I have to note that despite acclaim and awards, Hasbro, the company that owns the D&D license, itself let 1,100 employees go this month, and some of those were involved in Baldur's Gate 3. They also tried their hand at a D&D movie, and while it was well-reviewed, it wasn't a big success, nothing like the Mm. megaton hit that was the Super Mario Brothers movie. Well, one of HBO's top shows this year was also based on a game. This is the zombie apocalypse drama The Last of Us. I'm sorry about your daughter, Joel. But I have lost people, too. You have no idea what loss is. Hmm. So talk about how games and media are merging. Yeah, well, depending on how you count, the game industry is already bigger than than Hollywood and the recording industry combined. It's certainly bigger than the international box office. And just as comic books drove blockbuster movies in the 20-teens, it's clear that media executives think that gaming properties could drive them in the 2020s. You know, you put together this list of best games, and a lot of them are remakes. So in that way, it's like Hollywood 
except it's not. <laughs> well, what's old is new again, I suppose. It's the, it's the same thing that Hollywood is doing in one sense, where they just take something that was popular a couple decades ago and repackaging it for a new generation. But in this case, they're also doing it for new consoles, for better computer specs. Because the technology's improved. So the technology has improved, and a lot of these companies are also trying to see how they can improve or tweak or modify existing classics. Now, that's obviously very perilous because people like these games for what they were. But nonetheless, a lot of companies have seen fantastic success in doing this and selling people what they've already liked, including Resident Evil 4. This completely gonzo horror action story, and this year's version of it just doubled down. It got bigger and crazier while preserving what a lot of people really liked about the original. New hardware, new technology does allow game developers to really flesh out what they might not have been able to really accomplish in earlier decades. Okay. We mentioned earlier that Microsoft acquired Activision Blizzard, biggest gaming merger ever. I forgot, Microsoft owns Xbox. So talk about the significance of this. Yeah, so this has been pending for years. It had multiple issues with antitrust regulators finally cleared all of those hoops. For consumers, it means that people can expect a lot of games from big companies to show up on Microsoft subscription service, uh, Xbox Game Pass, which like Netflix, you just sign up for a monthly fee and then you can play hundreds of games through their service. So it's a good value proposition immediately, but there are fears that while games might not get any more expensive in the short term, that the whole field could get less competitive and therefore less creative. I I wanted you to take just a second to talk about some experimental games, you know, the things that might be off people's radar because they are wild. Yeah, so we've gotten huge games like Hogwarts Legacy, like Baldur's Gate and Tears of the Kingdom, as we've said. But a game that had a really big budget but didn't quite have that level of financial success is Alan Wake 2, which comes from this Finnish developer. And it's just as much an experimental art piece as it is a game. You play this novelist who's trapped in this nightmare realm connected to a Pacific Northwest town. You're literally rewriting this horror story as you go to try and get your way out of it. And it features a heavy metal musical. So it's not uh, a comedy. <laughs> well, it can be really silly. It's <laughs> the thing. Because it is so free with its influences. You've got Stephen King in there, Twin Peaks. There's even like an experimental, entirely in Finnish live action short film that you can just walk into a theater and watch in the game. <laughs> So that's a wild experience, and many people saw it as a, as a great step forward for the medium. And then you also get smaller personal games, like this lovely game called Venba, which is about cooking. It's about all these Tamil dishes that this woman is making for her family, which recently immigrated from India to Canada. But as much as you're going through the motions of cooking through the game, you're really experiencing how this family relates to each other over decades. Uh, and it's and it's really sweet and proof that games can be anything and they can be for a wide swath of people, even folks that don't think that they want to pick up a controller and sling spells or shoot guns. That would be me. And <laughs> this one sounds wonderful <laughs> about the Indian family. Again, it's called Venba. And we'll have the whole list of NPR's top games of 2023 edited by our own James Mastro Marino at hereandnow.org. James, thank you. Thank you, Robin. 
Our show comes to you thanks to the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories are produced by Lynn Menigan, Ashley Locke, and James Mastro Marino. Our editors are Todd Munt, Julia Corcoran, and Kat Welsh. Technical directors are Caleb Green and Patrick O'Connor. Mike Moschetto, Max Liebman, and Chris Bentley created the theme music. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. I'm Shirley Jihad. Thank you for being with us. Subscribe and see you tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. The right agent can make or break your home search. That's why Homes.com provides an agent directory that details each agent's experience so you can find the right one and ultimately the right home. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts.